0: Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes and Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Thank you for being here on an early Saturday morning, and I want to thank the World Affairs Council for giving me this opportunity to speak to you. Uh, I understand that um, I'll make some prepared remarks and then uh, for about 30 minutes, and then after that we'll have a question and uh, answer, answer session, and I'll be happy to take your questions. Think of Islam and politics, and most people think of the Middle East, and more recently Afghanistan and Pakistan. Some may think of Turkey. Only a few, unfortunately, would remember Indonesia, although this group would probably be among them. When one does read or hear about Indonesia, the news often relate to bombings in Bali or in Jakarta, or protests by jihadist groups against terrorism trials and their verdicts. Some of you probably remember um, just last weekend uh, that Indonesia executed three men for carrying out the, execu- uh, for carrying out, uh, the Bali bombing in 2002. The news angle? How it incited demonstrations by militants. Such news coverage illustrates the threat of Islamic extremism at a global level. They also fit in with a picture of Islamic intolerance simmering under the surface of a Muslim society. But really, these events draw, these events no more show the complexity of Indonesian society uh, than, than politi- uh, of Indonesian society and politics than focusing only on, say, far-right groups in Israel tell you about Israeli society and politics. And the pity is that Indonesia is not cited more often as a positive example of how Islam is compatible with democratization. Freedom House has ranked Indonesia among free countries for three years running, putting it alongside India and Mexico. It's not for nothing that the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, a well-respected election assistance organization, it's not for nothing that IFES, uh, this World Expected Election is- Assistance Organization calls Indonesia, and I quote, a success story as an Islamic democracy. Many analysts consider Indonesia a stable democracy, well on its way to democratic consolidation. One observer goes so far as to say, and we don't hear this a lot these days, that Indonesia is a country where the U.S. has gotten it right. In the time that I've got, I want to outline the political landscape in Indonesia with particular attention to the role of Islamic groups. I will focus on the part they played in the growth of civil society and in the process of democratization. On the evidence of the last 10 years, which is how long it's been since the dictatorship gave way to democratic practice, Indonesia offers a pretty good argument why Samuel Huntington's clash of civilizations thesis is overly simplistic. If you recall, that is the claim that global conflict will take place between culturally defined nations and groups especially between Islam and the West, because they hold such different values about modernity and government and human rights. But the idea that Islam cannot coexist with democratic freedoms is at least in Indonesia so far refuted. The country has had two sets of national elections and three peaceful transitions of presidential power. And you can see when they took place uh, if you look at the timeline that I've distributed. Islamic political parties exist side by side with secular parties. Party coalitions cross the religious divide, and cabinets have been broadly inclusive. Civil society groups, many Islamic activists among them, successfully mobilize on behalf of democracy and religious pluralism. There exists a a healthy level of debate about Islam and its role in politics, with a wide range of views expressed in the marketplace of ideas. When someone like Huntington looks at a place like Indonesia, he sees an Islamic society. What he doesn't see is the fact that it's, a complex, it's as complex a country as the United States, maybe even more so. Here's a country that consists of 14,000 islands. It stretches across 3,000 miles. It has 230 million people. I think you have a map too, so that would help you get a sense of its geography. It has 230 million people, and about 700 distinct languages are spoken. 90% of the people, that's nine zero, call themselves Muslim, but significant minorities of Christians, Hindus, and Buddhists exist. The Javanese is the largest ethnic group, but almost half of the population is a mosaic of groups, each contributing no more than 3% of the population. Indonesia is important geopolitically, straddling global sea lanes between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Indonesia also has large reserves of oil and gas. Its economy is closely tied to the world economy. The area had been part of a medieval empire. It had been under Dutch rule. It had been under Japanese occupation. It had experienced a near-communist takeover. This is a society with a complicated history and many, many social and political interests. Of course this very complexity also tempers some of the optimism i expressed earlier democratic consolidation is never a straightforward process (laughs) reversals do happen and indonesia is not out of the woods economic instability poverty poor governance and deep-seated corruption are some of the issues that might yet undermine political progress in indonesia they could still open the door to islamic radicalism or another type of strongman dictatorship my sense though is that if this happens, it would come about more from a small group seizing power from a weak state, and not because Indonesian society as a whole chooses to turn that way. If the US wants Indonesia to remain a friendly, democratic ally that just happens to have a Muslim population, it, make, it makes sense that it should help ensure Indonesia remains economically stable and appreciate the nuances of Islamic politics in that country. Islam followed the trade routes to the Southeast Asian archipelago, taking hold in the early 15th century. It grafted itself on top of Hindu-Buddhist traditions, already rooted in the region. Its strongest influence was felt in the West. If you look at the map, you'll see in the West is Arche, which has strong Islamic culture, and then its weakest in the East, hence Bali today remains Hindu-Buddhist. This interaction created a particular indigenized version of Islam that many anthropologists consider accommodating in character. Many religious rituals one might witness in Indonesia today, including mystical practices and pilgrimages to the graves of local saints, are considered problematic by the strictly orthodox. In the early 20th century, a wave of Islamic reform and revival washed ashore. It brought a new approach to Islam that sought to return to to the truth of scripture. At the same time, it represented a conscious effort to reconcile religious interpretation with the challenges of modernity. Those who followed this path could be said to be more fundamentalist, but they also embrace Western learning and science. Islam in Indonesia nicely illustrates the enormous variety of thought and practice within the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad. Both these strands of Islam, the indigenous, which Indonesians also call traditionalist, and then the modernist, flow through Indonesian history and politics. The traditionalist movement came to be embodied in a group called the Natlatu Ulama, or NU. The modernist movement was more fragmented, but dominated by a group called the Muhammadiyah. You'll find their names in the glossary that I've handed out. By the middle of the 20th century, these groups engaged in education and community welfare activities, as well as in politics. They were the largest organizations in Indonesia. Today, they are the largest Islamic organizations in the world. They have a combined membership of 17 million million members. The first defining point of political Islam that deserves highlight is the mid-20th century. Contemplating independence from Dutch rule, politicians from the NU and Muhammadiyah wanted a sovereign Indonesia to have an Islamic political basis. The majority of citizens were, after all, self-declared Muslims. But they faced opposition from other pro-independence leaders. These leaders argued that their best hope forward lay in unifying Indonesia's ethnic, linguistic, and religious groups. They embraced a secular position. A good deal of bitterness followed when the new Indonesian Republic made no mention of Sharia in its constitution. In the first post-independence elections, and that was in 1955, the electorate divided clearly down the middle between Islamic and secular parties. They also divided evenly between modernists and traditionalists. The failure of Islamic groups to act in unified fashion helps account for the inability to seize the political initiative against other political actors. Why couldn't they get their act together? It was partly theological, but, and I argue this in my dissertation, which um, I hope you'll read one day in book form, I really want promised promise a publisher. The reasons were primarily sociological. They served different constituencies and Islam could not bridge their divergent political interests. The electoral divisions produced a political stalemate. The country's first president, Sukarno, suspended democracy in 1957. His dictatorship proved disastrous, characterized by economic incompetence and social chaos. Now into the 1960s. In a coup, General Suharto deposed Sukarno. The now president, Suharto, controlled the government for 33 years. He had the backing of the powerful military and developed a far-reaching party machine that co-opted broad segments of society. The government effectively marginalised many groups that might have resisted it. Among them were Islamic groups. The new order, as it was called, as the government was called, built a reputation not merely as a secular government, but as a secularist one. That is, it took a tough stand on anyone or any group that purported to advance religious interests. Pre-existing Islamic political parties were forcibly fused into a single opposition party, with the un-Islamic name of the United Development Party. Not surprisingly, it did little to challenge the regime. The political discourse of the new order repeatedly warned to the extremism of the left, that is communism, and the extremism of the right, Islamic fundamentalism. These twin threats, it claimed, could undermine Indonesia's territorial integrity and obstruct its economic development. Economic growth and political order were sacrosanct during Suharto's regime. They justified severe limits on civil rights and all manner of political controls. The New Order government used its economic success to justify the hush policies. For a long time, if you wore a headscarf or some other manifestation of strong Islamic faith, you could be denied scholarships and a government job. You might take part in a religious study group, but one hint of criticism against uh, the the state even on matters strictly of religion and your persona non grata at best. But like many authoritarian regimes, repression was never total. An autonomous space existed in civil society, and the most active organizations were Islamic in nature. When Suharto's government took over, the Muhammadiyah and the NU, those large Islamic organizations I mentioned earlier, retreated into the so-called cultural sphere allowed to them. President Suharto tolerated the Islamic groups as long as they focused on obviously non-political activities. The Muhammadiyah and the NU walked a fine line between autonomy and accommodation. Nonetheless, they managed to become the mainstay of civil society, carving out a space independent of the state. The Islamic organizations focused on the religious schools and the community-oriented activities, which ran the gamut from local health clinics to farmer co-ops. They each maintained a formidable national network. They had ties to international NGOs. They functioned as voluntary associations, intermediate structures that kept religious followers socially engaged. They offered an alternative model for how citizens might be organized. Apart from the NU and the the Muhammadiyah, civil society in Indonesia also gained strength from a significant number of small but dynamic, independent Islamic groups. In the early 1980s, signs of more intense Islamic piety emerged in Indonesia. Mosque attendance went up, and a new generation of Islamic intellectuals achieved a new profile. Economic development and rising literacy made formal religious study accessible to more Indonesians. The state ironically also contributed to this rising religiosity. (laughs) At the local level, government policies were more tolerant towards Islamic practice than the official rhetoric. Officials saw religion as an outlet for energies otherwise directed at the state. The relative freedom of religious space compared to political space attracted many activists, cynical of politics, especially on university campuses. These groups were decidedly heterogeneous, emphasizing different aspects of Islamic doctrine for perspectives on economic and social problems. The perception that Islamic political representation was a travesty drew would-be politicians into these ranks. They shared an animosity towards the government for its antagonism against Islamic political expression. They resented the military's tendency to tar all opposition as Islamic radicals and then blame them for any social conflagration. Non-Islamic groups also formed part of Indonesian civil, civil society, but Islamic groups could wield a different type of moral idealism. Reigned against Suharto's dictatorship, their cause was anti-military and anti-authoritarian. Frequently, that translated into support for democracy. Another important intersection of Islam and politics took place in the late 1980s. President Suharto recognized the power of Islamic civil society. At this time, a split between between him and other political leaders inspired him to seek new allies against Islamic actors. He projected a more pious image and lent the state's prestige and prestige association of Muslim intellectuals called Ichmi. So Harto's plan was to draw on a sector that he had himself sidelined. These conservative Muslims who saw themselves as the true heirs of the political parties that had tried to give the republic at its founding a more distinctively Islamic identity. The NU, then led by Rahman Wahid, came out strongly against Ichmi. Interestingly, the discourse that the NU adopted was a pluralist one. It accused the government of favoring one religion above the others in violation of its own secular principles. The NU then openly allied itself with the official secular opposition party (coughs) headed by Sukarno's daughter Megawati Sukarnoputri. Until then, most power brokers and observers assumed an unbreachable cleavage between Islamic and non-Islamic actors their alliance opened up the potential for a secular Islamic coalition against the New Order regime. The NU's move was not only strategic, it had well-grounded philosophical basis and strongly influenced the development of Indonesian Islam. Abdurrahman Wahid defined what he called civil Islam, which he articulated to be fully compatible with liberal democracy and religious inclusion. Other Islamic intellectuals, including those from the modernist camp, also spoke out in favor of democracy. Nikolaj Majid, another well-known and revered intellectual, famously said, Islam, yes, Islamic parties, no. At the same time, the rise of Ichmi raised fears that pro-Sharia Islamists were positioning themselves for political advantage after, after Suharto left the scene. The state of politics in Indonesia in the mid to late 1990s roughly looked like this. On one side, Islamic civil groups aligned against the regime, with a number of them showing a clear willingness to work with secular political groups. On the other side, other religious actors who wanted a greater integration of Islamic principles into the state. They were not necessarily anti-democratic, but they did think state policy should privilege Islamists in a Muslim society. The Asian financial crisis precipitated President Suharto's downfall in 1998. The Indonesian economy shrank 14% the largest contraction by any single country in a year since the Great Depression. Other factors also set the stage, widespread corruption, cronyism, and nepotism. The transition was not easy. Many of you might remember the ugly urban riots that set Jakarta burning in 1998, when the persons and property of Chinese Indonesians became particular targets. Violent conflicts elsewhere between Muslims and Christians created a sense that chaos reigned So Harjo's deputy, B.J. Habibi, took over, but he lacked credibility. (coughs) Anything seemed possible. Habibi was believed to favor Ichmi, and so some feared a hardening of policy in favor of Islam. Others feared the military would take over, especially when Islamic turn did occur. Yet others entertained the possibility of a state collapse, with Indonesia breaking up like the Soviet Union. But a well-organized and pro-democracy movement, with many Islamic activists within it, kept up public pressure, helping to ensure elections in 1999. The results mirrored the 1955 elections in surprising ways, with the electorate again seemingly divided between Islamic and secular parties. But a closer look revealed a convergence. Two of the parties with Islamic leaders, one of them Rahman Wahid, adopted inclusive platforms. The five biggest parties which won more than 85% of the vote between them were secular parties or pluralist Islamic parties. When I say pluralist Islamic, I mean their leaders consistently reached out to non-Muslim groups, their platforms did not favor the institutionalization of sharia, and their members and and voters extended beyond a Muslim base. The pro-sharia Islamists together won far less than 10% of the vote. According to the rules of that time, legislators chose the president and they agreed on Abdurrahman Wahid. When he lost a vote of confidence in 2001, Megawati became president with the backing of various political parties, despite earlier talk over the issue of her gender. Since then, Indonesians have gone to the polls again in countrywide legislative elections in 2004. They have also participated in a a direct presidential election, which included a runoff. Each of these Elections was considered free and fair and largely unmarred by violence Not a small feat for a newly democratic polity where votes cast averaged 120 million That by the way also puts those elections among the largest exercises of democracy in the world The 2004 legislative elections were only exceeded by the US in the recent turnout for the presidential elections (laughs) And the number of registered voters in Indonesia for elections next year stands at 150 million The specter of Islamic radicalism remains, of course. Jama'a Islamiyah you might have heard that name, an extremist Islamic group, still exists in the Outer Islands. It was responsible for the multiple bomb attacks in Bali and Jakarta between 2002 and 2005. For a while, the government had appeared unwilling or unable to root it out. More recently, however, the arrests of top leaders are believed to have weakened it seriously. It has no ties to any mainstream Islamic parties. Outside of terrorist activities, low-level conflicts between Muslims and Christians persist. Isolated attacks on non-Muslims continue and some non-Islamic places of worship have been forcibly closed by vigilante groups. Hardline Muslims are a marginal but noisy group. At the level of government, the the pendulum swings both ways on matters of Islam. This I attribute to a new democracy, trying to find a social equilibrium. In 2002, a few Islamic political parties revived the proposal to make a constitutional amendment that would require the state to enforce Sharia on Muslim citizens. It generated controversy, but the effort was soundly defeated. In 2006, some district-level governments passed a number of local ordinances based on Sharia. This development was seen as worrisome because they impinged on the rights of women and religious minorities. The central government expressed an intention to roll back some of these ordinances, which usually pertain to pornography, gambling, alcohol, and prostitution. But fear of appearing insensitive to Islamic social conservatives had led to no action so far. But the ordinances have not developed into a national trend. Democracy activists effectively mobilized against them, using arguments of religious pluralism. Polls made during that period showed that more than 80% of Indonesians expressed a clear preference a secular state over an Islamic one. The current president is Susilo Bambang Yuriyono, a former general who has declared his belief in religious inclusiveness. His vice president is considered an observant Muslim acceptable to Islamic voters. Their partnership is yet another sign of political willingness to build alliances across the religious divide. According to polls, Yuriono's appeal lay in his apparent ability to get things done with economic recovery and the elimination of (coughs) political corruption the main issues, rather than religion. The dominant political parties have remained mostly the same. What did win a lot of headlines in the 2004 elections was the rise of the Prosperous Justice Party, or PKS. It won about 7% of the vote, which made it the sixth largest party. The party had provoked controversy for statements made made earlier on that suggested an underlying radicalism. One foreign journalist reported a photo of Osama bin Laden in a PKS office. In the 2004 elections, however, the PKS took a centrist position. Its leaders said they wanted to apply Islamic concepts like equality, rule of law, and social justice in government, but did not favor sharia as such. During the campaign, the PKS stressed moral reform, clean government, and economic issues. Its members typically had university education, and the party projected even keel competence. One report that made the rounds told of how PKS organizers cleaned up the litter left behind after big rallies. As anyone who has been to Indonesia knows, littering is an epidemic there. The idea that a political party would take care of something so widely ignored spoke volumes to many people. The PKS is inspired by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and appears to be applying the same social services focused tactics of groups like Hamas to win over hearts and minds. It also resembles the Wasat party in Egypt, which has a strong professional base. So is it a stealth party that would show its real colors once it it becomes a more formidable political party? I think it's unlikely. The PTS steered clear of those parties that supported Sharia for Muslims and chose to support non-Islamic figures in the direct presidential elections. So far, they really seem to be following a temperate path. I predict that they would stay the course because what we see of political behavior in Indonesia today suggests institutional incentives are working to bring about convergence. There were worries during the regime transition that proportional representation would favor smaller, radical parties rather than bigger, moderate ones. There have certainly been problems with accountability and efficiency in a multi-party system. The introduction of a directly elected presidency has mitigated the disadvantages of that system. In combination, the electoral system gives voice to diverse views while encouraging parties to find a middle ground that would win them the powers of executive office. In the legislature, we're seeing political parties aligning themselves into two broad coalitions, and these coalitions include both Islamic and secular elements. Look at Indonesia closely, and we see factors other than culture that can better explain Islamic politics, or the potential for democracy. Firstly, Islamic politics is, like much else, a historical phenomenon. It grows out of the interaction of different Islamic actors and their interaction with other political, part of other political actors. It reflects attempts by past governments to manipulate, repress, and exploit religion. It also captures the ability of Islamists to negotiate those efforts. Secondly, Islamic politicians and voters respond to institutional incentives no differently than non-Islamic actors. That's sort of a fancy way of saying that Huntington, in proposing a clash of civilizations, seemed to think people are one-dimensional and primarily see the world through a broad civilizational perspective. But really, reality is far more complicated. Thank you.
2: You talked quite a bit about Sharia law, Mm -hmm. and uh, what I think I heard was that elements of Sharia law have been passed into the body of secular law, but that Sharia law is not the basis for law. And, And I'd like you to clarify that. Maybe I'm wrong, but could you give us just a little focused discussion of the relationships between the secular law and Sharia law and how Sharia law fits?
1: It's something that uh, is, is still developing. Uh, law in Indonesia um, has very much been based on Dutch law um, because of its colonial history. Um, and uh, there was strong resistance against including um, Sharia or any mention of Islamic uh, doctrine or principles uh, in the Constitution uh, when uh, the republic was founded. Uh, and through the, uh, through the Suharto regime, uh, again, there was uh, much opposition to the idea that Sharia ought to have any influence uh, on law. Having said that, um, Suharto did set up uh, a council of uh, Indonesian clerics, it was called MUI, Mui um, that uh, tried to lend some legitimacy to uh, his, his policies. The there has no, as far as I know, there has there is a um, there are uh, courts that uh, there are courts that abide by, um, that implement Sharia in, in very limited ways, uh, and but they are for the time being um, relatively marginal. Uh, they have not. I would not say that Sharia has been uh, integrated into secular law. Uh, it's still largely secular. Uh, although what politicians would say is they try to base secular law on Islamic principles. Uh, without actually um, uh, saying that they are that, that these are, are Sharia. Yeah. And, and the understanding of Sharia, too, is, is interesting because when, when people in the West talk about Sharia, very often the image of the Taliban comes, in, comes to mind. Um, but the way the Indonesians under shari, understand Sharia is quite different. Um, polls have been taken where people would be, be asked, uh, do you support Sharia? And something like 70% would say, oh, yes, we do. And then you, and then you actually break it down, and you say, "Well, do you support, you know, um, punishment for adultery? Would you uh, support particular punishments for, for uh, stealing?" Stealing, exactly. Uh, and then uh, Indonesians say, "Oh no, no, not that." Uh, so they understand Sharia more in terms of moral principles uh, than actual um, uh, sort of f- fundamentalist reading of uh, Islamic
3: law. Can I add? Uh, Sharia is in, in um, anyway, my, my name is Arman. I'm, I'm from Indonesia, and I'm active here in U.S. and Indonesia and political as well. Uh, Sharia is also means, in Arabic, means that uh, the duty of a Muslim or, or individual towards each other. So basically that's the rules of those. So, the, the interpretation of those is, is uh, so far right now is only related to uh, the stealing and all this kind of stuff. But anything, for example, what we see in the U.S. government, uh, for example, uh, in, in, in CPAN, how the, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, what the House of Representatives show how they work and everything is is in conjunction with the Sharia. So that's, that's if you want to call it, that's a Sharia. How do you, the judge rules, I mean, the, the Congress uh, question the credibility of the president? It's the Sharia. So, those, those kind of stuff is, is, you have to look at it from that point. So, mm-hmm. that's why it's acceptable in some cases in Indonesia for those uh, called to be, uh, what do you call it? secularism, mm-hmm. as long as they are in conjunction with Sharia.
1: Right, I think, I think what you're saying is, and I entirely agree with you, that Indonesians see a great overlap. Between secular and, and Sharia, secular law and Sharia. They don't see them as being separate,
0: separate. Um, subjects.
2: Thank you.
0: Yes. Your, uh, your presentation is very, very good. Thank
1: you. Oh, sure.
0: Thank you. Your <laughs> organizational material is just terrific. Thank you. Um, my question uh, is up is at the grand strategic level, and it, it stems from a question that, uh, that was asked Thursday evening at SMU at a geopolitical conference. Uh, and it was uh, based on uh, advice that the participants would give to President-elect Obama for the first things that he should do. And, uh, your opening comments about what America's gotten right in reference to Indonesia intrigues me. So I'm, I'm really asking a larger context question. Is there a model for the United States in the future? And is there an influence piece for America to use as a, as a guide because what I think I see here in your, in your in your graph down here at the bottom is that there's a large percentage that's in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a balance there. And one of the attendees of at the conference yesterday was a man named uh, CM Brown. Uh, and he proposed a polyarchic geopolitical model to look at the view. Polyarchic meaning there's no model, it's just all over. It's if you're a mathematician, it's more chaos theory, complex adaptive systems. Uh, what advice, or influence for the for America, leadership, uh, would you give? And is Indonesia and in our our interface and relationship with Indonesia, is it the right model for internationalism for the United States in the next four to eight years?
1: Um, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> next, question. next question. No. Um, Yes, I think the United States has gotten it right with Indonesia. Uh, and a big part of, of getting it right, I think, uh, was that the United States chose to invest in civil society. And it chose to invest in Islamic civil society groups. Um, and, uh, uh, and that has helped to keep them moderate. That has helped to keep them friendly uh, to the United States. That has also helped to, to keep them uh, when they were, uh, when they saw themselves in opposition to Suharto, uh, that helped to keep them on the side of democracy. Um, and, uh, uh, and as for how the United States uh, ought to engage Indonesia, uh, especially under an Obama administration, um, unfortunately in the last eight years under the Bush administration, um, Indonesians have come to see the U.S., like much of the rest of the world, uh, as uh, on the crusade against Islam. Uh, and that has alienated some of them. Um, they see that they see bilateral relations as overly focused uh, on uh, terrorism. You know, really, I mean, all we hear about Indonesia these days is terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. Uh, and what they would like to, uh, the the new Obama administration to do, I think, is to you know look more broadly at the issues that concern them. I mean, they are not only interested in issues of Islam, which they are, you know, concerned about, but they also want uh, uh, they they want to, to um, they want to clean up their government they want to uh, recover economically. Uh, They have been hit uh, actually a little bit worse even than the US since the global financial crisis came along. Um, And I think what they would want is uh, for the United States to just broaden their perspectives in terms of issues um, on the table uh, in bilateral relations. Uh, But generally speaking, I think the the electoral system that uh, was set in place, again, uh, with um, a lot of help from US uh, aid organizations, Uh, has just worked out fantastically. Uh, Now, of course, electoral systems um, have to be different and and adapted to the unique circumstances of any particular society. In the case of Indonesia, uh, there was a lot of talk about the possibility of a uh, majoritarian system the way that the U.S. has it, but there was fear that uh, if that was in place, uh, that regional parties would end up being set up uh, and that uh, that would split up the country. Uh, and so they have proportional representation, which, you know, on the one hand is not terribly efficient, um, not a lot of accountability, because you just have too many parties, and you don't know who is the one responsible. Uh, cabinets can be too inclusive. Um, at the same time, different groups, even the smaller groups, feel represented. They feel right. that they are part of the process. Uh, and, and I think so far that has worked out well. The, the reforms that uh, President Yuri Yono, um, has been putting in place, he has been criticized for being too cautious. Um, but I actually belong to the school that says like, that caution is not a bad thing. Uh, a lot of people say that, that Indonesia you know, has not been uh, moving ahead fast enough. Uh, but I think slow and easy actually is, is a better way, um, especially when you have so many complex issues uh, to think about. Thank
4: you. Yeah. I have to make this comment, which leads into my question. Okay. Um, Indonesia, the media, terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. I feel like in America, we have been labeled as on a crusade, and I personally don't feel like Americans are on a crusade against Islam. I feel like there are a lot of Islamic people living in this country, as well as Buddhists, Hindus, you name it, and I think we live very peacefully. Which brings me to my question. I have this underlying feeling that the media is sabotaging or creating these problems around the world by labeling Indonesia as terrorists, 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 and Americans as on this crusade, as I'm just using your words as an example, know. and I'm sitting here feeling like maybe the media is working against all of the things that actually countries are trying to do for one another and with one another. Do you feel like the media is, I, I feel like I, I'm so against the media, i like, <laughs>
2: i you know, I- are to crusade against the media? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we need but, to crusade against. I is. mean, not the
5: only
4: person that feels like this in the media is, is highlighting or depicting certain countries as being different than perhaps they really are. I mean, if you look across the board, America is very generous and and what we do here does influence the economy of the world and our economy goes down so does the American economy. And let's face it, Americans don't want the economy around the world to be bad because we truly believe in a global market. I, I've got to stop because but, <laughs> but do you have any comments about the media and the impact that it has?
1: Well, I, I don't think there's a vast conspiracy out there. Uh, I, I first don't of think all, it's a yeah. conspiracy either. I just
4: think it's what they do as a
1: business. Right, right. I think what happens, and this is a comment on the media, and, you know, obviously other people um, could share their views. Um, the media like to... Hook onto a narrative. It's easy to tell a story, and it's easy to tell a story that only has you know one plot. Uh, and the, the problem with reality is there are many, many subplots, um, and uh, you know different plots kind of emerge at different times. And when you when you look at a country like Indonesia, you know it's so complex. How do you go about even you know beginning to talk about? I mean, all the different things out there.
4: You just did it in a half hour and did it well. <laughs> I want that in the news. So people can understand.
1: But, you know, I mean, the average newspaper article, I read the New York Times, for instance, which is, you know, a good newspaper. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, what, I only have, I'm, and I, I mean, I'm someone who's interested in international affairs, and I have the attention, I, I spend maybe two minutes on a single article. Uh, and, you know, and then you flip to the next one. So, um, I mean, my opinion is, sure. I mean, I think it's just, it is pity that the media, you know, sort of hook onto a single narrative, and then they kind of run with it. Now it's sexy. It's sexy to talk about bombings. It's sexy to talk about terrorist groups. I mean, who doesn't want to hear about terrorist Me. groups? Me. <laughs> <laughs> honestly,
4: we went to Jakarta after 9-11, and we spent the night and left because we were afraid. I have to tell you, it was one of the first times in my life where I really felt like I was discriminating against people because I really, truly don't. I said to my husband, I'm scared. I want to get out of here. It was ridiculous to feel that way. Does anybody
1: else have um, a response to that?
4: Well, I'm also wondering, since we're on the media stream, how you feel the Indonesian government handled these, the the to um, death of these the all these terrorists. It seems like they seriously mishandled this. I'm wondering what you think.
1: In what way do you mean they mishandled? Well,
4: you know, the, the guys stay in prison for all these years. Why all of a sudden do they decide to put them to death? Why not just leave them in prison I mean, as one as one option? Why did they release their bodies so their bodies could be paraded for the media? We all know what the media was gonna do with these. So I'm just wondering, you know, who was in the Indonesian government finally made the decision that it
1: was time for these guys to be put to death and why not? Um, it went through a process they were put on trial quite a few years ago, I forget now when exactly. 2004, 2004 was it? They were put on trial quite a few years ago. And uh, and then they were found guilty. And of course the trial itself was, you know, created lots of controversy um and then but then they adhered to a process of appeals and counter appeals and you know the, the usual thing you see in a, in, a, in a free justice system uh and then finally they decided okay all you've exhausted all your appeals uh, this is the law of the country indonesia happens to be one of those countries where um, uh, death penalty uh, applies um, as to why now well <clears throat> i mean you've got to do it at some point uh, that's, that, just, that just happens to be a lot of the country, uh, and you know you can just imagine the, the the flip side too. The criticism if if they didn't follow it through, uh, you know already the Indonesian government faces criticism overseas for not for not being hard enough um, on these terrorists. Um, so they're kind of caught in a hard place, and you know there are elements in Indonesia that I mentioned. Um, there are militants who who um, who, rea- who would react the way that they did. Uh, as, as was um, reported uh, over the last weekend, but for many, many other Indonesians, uh, I mean, they were really glad to see the back of these guys. Um, you know, they—they it, it, they, in fact, a lot of Indonesians have difficulty understanding why these groups even exist at all in Indonesia, because their sense, their idea of Islam is so is so distant from from what these terrorists um, believe in.
4: Uh. How much influence do the clerics have? Do they make statements that directly influence government like they do in other countries? Or are they really a minor voice?
1: Um, there is a wide range. Uh, the, the, the Islam in Indonesia, at least, doesn't function like, say, uh, the, uh, the Ayatollahs do in Iran. There's no central authority. Uh, so the, cler- the clerics are all over the place with this. Um, you, know, you, do have, you do have clerics that are linked to the government. Uh, you do have clerics from the Muhammadiya uh, organization. You do have clerics from the N.U. Uh, and very often they say different things, uh, and uh, they do hold some influence, uh, obviously with Muslims. But I wouldn't say that they are—they're an important part of public discourse, but they're not by any means dominant. They're no, not
4: an influence on law.
1: I mean, they do have some influence in terms of—but um, as far as changing
4: something arbitrarily, no, no. I,
3: do, I, say wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so, I wouldn't say so. Would you agree? Yes. I mean most of the time though, what, what they do is they're giving suggestions, which is a part uh, uh, For example, they say uh, doing the traditional banking is considered to be unlawful in Islam. And that's what they do. And for a Muslim, they want to do or not do, it's up mm-hmm. to them. But they, as the cleric, they, they, they make the decision on their, uh, on their side. For example, uh, pornography law, the last uh, the most commonly Discuss in Indonesia with a lot of uh, chaos not chaos but uh, demonstration and so on and you know, the cleric says in Islamically, as, 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 a, as a Muslim this is unlawful have pornography in in the society whether you the government want to adopt it or not it's up to them so that's that's how they their influence in individual decision of deciding where to go in in the uh, in, in, in all of this uh, but they,
4: so. they don't have the power to overcome a, a, a Democrat vote. No. say uh, no. Step in and no. make sure it it They're
3: not in. part of the government. They're okay. they're independent. They are independent entities that elected not by the government but by the people. Uh, a lot of clerics, and they they choose, choose until they get to reach this uh, small group of people. And,
1: and even and even in terms of social influence, I mean, think of what the Catholic Church says, and what Catholics in the United States, how they respond to right. what the Catholic Church says. You know, right. they kind of, they take some and then they they ignore others. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of the same way with Muslims in Indonesia. Right, yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. thank you. Um, prior to the tsunami, there was, uh, I guess, uh, armed conflict in uh, in one of the provinces, is it Banda Aceh, I And I read several anal- uh, analysis saying that, predicting that this was just, uh, you know, first step in the dissolution of of Indonesia. And now, I mean, the various groupings throughout, ethnic groups and what have you, would not be able to stay together. Post tsunami, and from what you're saying, it sounds like, you know, this is no longer an issue. And I'm wondering, is that a correct interpretation? Uh, Because, like I say, for a uh, very recent period of time, uh, several articles that I read were predicting Dire uh, future Yeah, they've been
1: predicting the breakup of Indonesia since, you know, even when Suharto was in power. Uh, and You know, the, the, the explanation at that time was, well, Suharto built such a strong state, had such a strong military behind him, that that was how Indonesia was held together. Take that away and oh my gosh, it's going to become another Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, and that hasn't happened. As for Banda Aceh specifically, what you might be thinking of is... Um, for a long time, Aceh uh, did not consider itself part of Indonesia. Uh, it uh, it has a slightly separate history than, um, than how the rest of the archipelago uh, developed. It was never quite under Dutch rule, the way that the rest of the archipelago was. Uh, and so for the longest time, there was a free Aceh movement. You might have heard about them. It was, they, 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 it was an insurgency against the central Indonesian government in Java. Uh, but a uh, peace accord was finally signed in Helsinki in 2005. Uh, and that seemed to have held. Uh, it took a long time to get there, there was a lot of bloodshed, uh, previous peace reports had fallen through, but this one held, uh, and, it, and it has held um, through today. Uh, and, and I think it was in 2006 or 2007, um, uh, there were elections for the governor of Aceh, and a former leader of the Free Aceh Movement was elected as governor, and the central government accepted that. Uh, Aceh today is also what is called a free economy. Uh, no, I'm sorry. What is that? Um, special autonomy zone, uh, special autonomy province, uh, uh, and that means that it's got a lot more sort of federal control uh, over government than other parts of uh, of Indonesia. It's the same with uh, with Papua, which is in the far east, uh, and again that was annexed by Indonesia in the 1970s, uh, and, uh, and for the longest time uh, fought a, uh, a separatist uh, campaign. Uh, they too have special autonomy. And that seems to have uh, eased uh, separatist sentiments um, and and on the subject of sort of that sort of decentralization, um, there's been a lot of decentralization going on uh, in the rest of Indonesia as well, uh, even the parts that were not uh, threatening to secede uh, and that again uh, seems to have worked really well in terms of um, of making people feel like. Uh, their voices are being heard, at the local level at least, um, they, they have uh, much more control uh, over sure, policies. Kind of exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, governor, governors are now directly elected by the people, um, and governors are the heads of the provinces, and there are 30 some provinces, uh, and uh, they have also their own legislatures. I, I work for the Fort Worth Sister
5: Cities organization in Fort Worth, has a relationship with Fondue, mm-hmm. and we have since 1990. Um, and kind of on your comments, um, we haven't been able to do as many um, citizen diplomacy trips there. Like, that's what our organization is all about, unfortunately. And I think that, in a way, it was some of the things that you were saying about what the me media has been doing, is for us to continue those exchanges. However, we haven't sent a youth group there since 1998. And I'm just, one of the things that I would really like to do is revive that. And unfortunately, I just, the message just can't seem to get across to the families, and the parents, and especially with the travel warning that's always been up there. I mean, you know, we even canceled a trip one time, the mayor was gonna go, and then he canceled it because he was really nervous mm. about traveling there. Honestly, that's mm. that's what happened. <coughs> so I just wanted to know what your opinion was as far as and suggestions for how, you know, my job working for this organization to get the information out to the people that it actually is a safe place to visit. And any ideas or strategies you have to... Well, certainly
1: more talks like this.
5: <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm excited. I'm excited more of them to come today um, because of this, but I think this is the way to do it, but any any other things I can say or, you know, I really would love to revive that. I mean, I think our students yeah. need
4: to travel there.
1: You know, again... The
4: Committee could have speakers like her come and talk
5: absolutely.
1: to them. Absolutely.
4: That would be a good way to start. Or to get people in. With the
5: Bandung Committee, I feel like we would be preaching to the choir. They feel the same way. They want to
4: continue these things. But they can well. bring their friends. Yeah, it's true. It That's very people. true.
1: I think one okay. thing to keep in mind that people I mean, often just be ignorant about is that Indonesia is so big. And that when you hear about conflicts, you know, very often, you know, look at your map, very often they take place in, you know, Maluku, they take place in in Sulawesi Uh, and if you go to places like, if you go to places in Jakarta, for instance, or Sumatra, um, yeah, I mean, they are, you know, I I walk down the street, uh, you know, on my own. I mean, I I take cabs everywhere um, on my own. I I traveled, uh, you know. I know, I'm a woman. I look Chinese, which did make me a little feel a little bit nervous. But then, you know, it, it proved to be unfounded. Um, so, so I think a lot of it is just ignorance. It's
5: unfortunate.
1: It, which is unfortunate. I
5: also was curious about this. Is just something I always wondered about. What is the of the issue with the Timor and East Timor, and how's that? What is is it part of Indonesia or is it? I mean, how does that? Work?
1: Well, East Timor is now independent. independent. Yeah, uh, it was a Portuguese uh, colony, and uh, rather than Dutch, <coughs> so they didn't even speak uh, Dutch, uh, and so uh, and it was annexed. I think again in the 1970s, uh, and it was just brutal. I mean, there was they, they the Indonesian military uh, was really brutal in terms of uh, putting down resistance against it, and then uh, under Habibi, uh, after Suharto left office, Habibi decided to hold a referendum there, uh, which might have been ill-considered, but he did it anyway. And, uh, and the uh, East Timorese decided that they, they elected, they voted for independence. Then the military mm-hmm. stepped in uh, and I guess decided that, wait a second, we weren't expecting this, how did this happen, uh, and, and launched another military campaign to try and, uh, and essentially you know, terrorize uh, the population into remaining um, in, in Indonesia. Failed, uh, the UN had set up an administration there, uh, but I believe uh, authority had passed back to the East Timorese now, uh, and they are fully independent. And Indonesia now accepts that. Um, we've had high-profile visits on both sides. Uh, heads of state um, uh, visiting each other and, and saying that okay, we're friends now, we're neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, but East Timor, East Timor is, is very, very tiny. It's very, very poor. Uh, for the time being, it, it largely depends on Australia, really, uh, for aid. Uh, and um, you know but i guess the important thing is that they they are where they want to be they are, they are independent
4: so west timor is part of the province west the
1: province? west timor is part of it thank you <laughs>
0: could you speak a little bit to the business environment really um the growth in indonesia from from two aspects one uh, the corruption that we hear about um, and the second is how does uh the, the political parties influence business? Is business done very much in alignment with the political process, or does business tend to be much more secular?
1: Um, well, business is definitely secular.
0: Um,
1: I, I would say that, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say there's any Islamic influence on the doing of business in Indonesia. You uh, if you're looking to, to invest in Indonesia, it's all uh, very above board, very... Except for Playboy magazine, we as <laughs> well. <laughs> right, right. Um, Indonesia has had uh, trouble with attracting uh, foreign investment uh, and that's because uh, you know perceived instability um, but also because as you as you point out corruption uh, and corruption corruption is uh, is endemic uh, it, it was there when Suharto uh, was in power it's been there uh, it's largely because of, of poverty it's largely because of um, uh, of a state that has been unwilling to to uh, enforce laws, partly because the elite are so deep in it themselves. Uh, the military, for instance, is, is heavily involved uh, in, in business. And... Um,
0: does the military own businesses over It does.
1: It does. And that's in part because the state doesn't have enough money to pay, okay. to pay for the military. And I think I recently read that some 60% is incredible, some 60% of the military's budget uh, is independent not come from the state. Um, so uh, yeah. So you can see that is a potential problem too. Uh, uh, but, uh, I mean,
2: can
5: you speak to that for a few minutes? Uh,
2: can you speak to that? One?
5: Does, what could be the future implications of that?
1: There have been attempts at, efforts at, uh, at military reform since democratization. Uh, of course the president, uh, the, the present president is from the military himself. Uh, some people saw it as a good thing that he would then have the leverage to try and, uh, and reform the military, uh, but other people thought that well, you know, I mean, he obviously, you know, would have friends, you know, whose uh, whose careers would be affected. Um, they do have a civilian uh, minister of defense, uh, and that's been in place since democratization. So that's definitely a move forward, uh, and there've been other. I mean, there've definitely been uh, been advances. For instance, the military used to. Uh, have seats in parliament. Uh, that's been done away with. Uh, and the military used to have um, hold ministerial posts. Uh, now that's not allowed anymore. You you can hold minis- You can't be in the cabinet only if you retire from the military. Um, but but there are, but but l- large problems remain. I mean, there have been some structural reforms that they haven't gone far enough. So, for instance, the military has something called a territorial uh, command structure. Uh, during the Suharto uh, era. That structure mirrored the bureaucracy at at every level. So when when policies were made, it wasn't just the civilian bureaucrats involved. The military had a representative at the table as well. uh, And they had a say in policy. That structure remains in place, although their influence has has receded. Um, So I had mentioned very briefly in in my remarks that um, there is still the possibility of a strongman dictatorship. It's still possible, I think, that the military uh, might step back in if it perceived that, um, that, the civili- that civilian politicians were not um, being effective, were not doing what they ought to do, and it, it felt like their institutional interests were being challenged by civilian politicians. Having said that, I think that um, sufficient uh, reforms have taken place in the military, and there's just so much um, anti-military uh, sentiments among citizens that I think that's unlikely. Possible,
4: In the uh, in the '80s, I worked for a multinational, and the laws in Indonesia were such that a U.S. company could not own a business there. And what we did was then there was an Ivy, there was an Indonesian company, and then we formed a parallel company as a consultant. Is that still true? You cannot a U.S. company cannot own a business?
1: There actually has been a change recently. Uh, unfortunately, I do not know the details. Uh, I kind of sk- remember just skimming it over. Um, that has changed, and I think it has become more investment friendly. Um, but I forget if, and I don't want to be wrong on this, but I, I forget if a foreign investor can now own up to 100% uh, of a company in, in Indonesia, or if there's still a percentage that has to be held in reserve for a local investor. Um, that part I'm not sure, but, but I dare say that, uh, that the rules have relaxed.
2: I'd like to ask about uh, education in, in Indonesia, and the reason I ask is our friends in the media portray uh, the Islamic schools as being, you know, very dominant and, uh, and also oftentimes radicalized. And I wonder, would you talk about uh, the educational system and, and tell us if this is an accurate picture or whether it's a skewed picture? Skewed picture. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that.
1: Um, there are secular schools, by the way there are no such things as secular madrasas, as you all learned during the presidential campaign. There are secular schools, these are public schools, they are state schools. Uh, and I think a majority of, 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 the, of uh, Indonesians attend those schools. Then there are also religious schools, Islamic schools, run largely by the NU and the Muhammadiyah. Uh, and those are the Muhammadiyah Mah- Mah- Mahah- schools tend to be called madrasas. It's just terminology. Uh, the uh, NU schools tend to be called uh, pesantren. Uh, and and these are schools. They do have to adhere to uh, uh, state guidelines on what they teach. Uh, but they and the the madrassas, the, the Muhammadiyah schools, do tend to incorporate more uh, secular subjects than the uh, than the pesantren and the NU schools. Um, but. Um, but they, I mean, but they, they are, no, they're not, I mean, they're not. Would you, would you
2: hazard a guess what percentage of uh, Indonesian students attend which
1: type of school? Well, I'm trying to remember offhand. Um, a very rough guess, a guess would be something like 70% attend uh, public schools and, you know, maybe 28 or 9% the rest uh, attend um, religious schools. And then a very, very, very small minority attend those schools that we
3: hear about uh, that produce these extremists. And they do exist. Um, In my add on that one, and and the school, uh, it's correct that 70% goes to public school, and the rest of them, 30% goes to uh, uh, private school, religious school. Uh, The most popular one, I I myself attended Catholic school when I was there. I'm Muslim, but uh, I attended Catholic school because they're considered to be good. So all the most of the rich people, uh, middle high, they go at, uh, tend to go to the private school. i like here U.S. In yeah. Oh, okay. uh, so, uh, but uh, as you said, uh, the the trend, for example, they're more towards building a character, Islamic characters in themselves, instead of building a uh, building and in pure okay. intelligent people without any anything in it. So what happens is, is that, like you, you see the, the speaker of the house right now. He graduated from this uh, uh, pesantren, which is considered to be extremist. He is the Speaker of the House. And he was the one who promoted not accepting any money from the government from his own, for his own uh, uh, stuff. So, uh, and, and this is the, the perception only on the media is what we said. Is that the media percepted that the pesantren or these Islamic schools are training them to be an extremist. But basically it is not, it is just independent, uh, when they graduated, they go and uh, achieve another, another Career, college, 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 and that's what they're, they're coming Technical with. school. Yeah. In other parts of the Muslim world, you hear about Saudi influence, the
4: Saudis in particular running schools. Mm-hmm. Do you not see the Saudis having any influence in
1: Indonesia? Um, it's, um, it's complicated. Um, the Saudis do give money to uh, to Indonesian religious organizations, but uh, they have mostly been giving money not so much for education and religious training per se, but more in terms of building uh, mosques. Uh, and so it goes to infrastructure rather than, than the actual content. Um, now you do see Saudi influence in terms of Indonesians. Um, um, in terms of Muslims going to uh, Saudi Arabia or Egypt uh, to study at at their Islamic universities, um, so so there is there is uh, an exchange of ideas that way, uh, and some uh, a lot of modernists in fact have uh, have have been educated uh, there. But so have so have people like Abdul Wahid. Uh, just because you have studied at a Saudi or an Egyptian university doesn't necessarily make you conservative or, or extremist. Uh, and I think that. Um, that Indonesian Islam, you know, they, they, they Indonesian Islam has remained um, has remained sort of. They have a strong sense of what is Indonesian Islam. Uh, that, that it is slightly different. That it is different from the Middle East. Uh, for instance, there has also been a, a backlash against the idea that that Muslims ought to dress in a particular way. I hear I hear Muslims in Indonesia saying, "Well, oh, why do we have to dress? Um, you know, the way that the Middle uh, Muslims in the Middle East do. That's their culture." we have a different culture. We are Muslims too, but our culture doesn't dictate that we dress in that particular fashion. Uh, and until money started coming in from from the Middle East you know, to help build mosques for instance, you'll find that mosques in uh, in Indonesia actually look nothing like mosques uh, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, even even that minaret you don't necessarily see that. And I've seen mosques which are, you know, you just, you walk by them and you don't realize they're mosques. They're, they're open spaces. Uh, you know between. A, a building like, almost like a storefront along with other storefronts uh and you go in and you, and you meet with your fellow muslims and and you're a man you you have prayers there um and 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 that is Indonesianism.
0: for more information about the world affairs council of dallas fort worth visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org